Dr. Morris Nickel, Living Time and the Integration of the Life. I must ask the reader to consider some of the other cosmological theories, particularly because they do not regard the visible world in time as the sum total of reality. And mostly, most scientific approaches these days look at the world, the sum total of the world, of the reality of the world as the visible world. That's the sum total of reality. And that's just the way that is. Let's take the system of Erigena and examine it briefly. This system belongs to the 10th century AD, and its general standpoint, like that of the Pythagorean and the Platonic, one that we have glanced at, can be expressed by the phrase, the visible is derived from the invisible. You know, I've never been very good at Latin. I was like an altar boy, you know, and a choir boy, and like raised Catholic. And back in those days, the Mass was in Latin, and I didn't understand any. Anybody remember Pig Latin? Yeah. How's it go? Delta email. Okay. Does that email you? (laughs) (laughs) (coughs) Okay, so the visible is derived from the invisible. This seems like a no-brainer to us. But to people in the world, this is just craziness. Connie and I were coming along and she was talking about people in Mexico, she said, people in Mexico have cell phones, but you don't see them stuffed in their head when they're walking around everywhere. And I started to point out people who were walking along in the streets who didn't have cell phones. And I admit, mostly you see people with cell phones when they're walking along. I said, well, you know, I think I know why now, Connie. I think it's because they're getting instructions. Left, right, (laughs) left, right, step up, step down, look left, look right. It must be, because... What else could it be? Why else would you want to walk and be on a phone? Or, yeah, we saw somebody riding a bike texting. I don't know what she was doing. She said, what's that kid doing? I said, that's not a kid. That's a woman. She's riding along with one hand, and she's doing something with her phone, looking down with the other. And I'm thinking, you know, these people are going to be removed from the gene pool. Not on the front of my car. Yeah, not on the front of my car either. Notice it stops stoplights. People are texting. Yeah. Yeah. It's so bizarre. Well, anyway, the visible is derived from the invisible. And we're talking about Erigena. It is a system based on scale. According to all systems of this kind, we live in a created universe in which nothing lives of itself. For the entire universe, including that part of it on which our senses open, is connected together. I like that. That part of it on which our senses open. So we're just seeing this little tiny, it's like imagine looking through a crack in a wall. And that's the crack in the wall that opens onto the world. Then the part of the world that you see through that crack in the wall is the part of the world that your senses show you. And all the rest of it is invisible to you. Now, for you, this is probably not a new concept. I remember the first time I ever read this. It was amazing to me. It was in uh, Lessons in Truth by H. Emily Cady. And it was written in the 1800s. And the woman gives us, she was a doctor, and she gives us an example. All these people standing behind this big wall. And down here, there's this guy standing, and he's looking, he's got a little pinhole he's looking through. Oh, I see the world. It's, you know, this. And someone down a little bit further is looking through a bigger hole. And he says, no, 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 no. I see the world. It's grass and sky. Someone else got a bigger hole, and he looks through, and he now it's grass and sky and trees, and someone else got to be in grass, sky, trees, clouds, sun, you know, and then it goes on and on and on. And that's what we're like. 
You know, we have this really limited, narrow perception of things because of the five senses, but because it's all we know, it's the only reality that we have. And so we have to be told about another reality. And being told about it, it's just like Plato's thing with the cave, which we haven't done yet, but you can be told about it, but all you'll do is kill the people who tell you. That's generally how we react to things. Somebody tells us something that is not real to us, we consider them insane, and if they persist and they annoy us enough, we kill them. Anyway, not to labor the point, we live in a created universe in which nothing lives of itself, but the entire universe, including that part of it on which our sense is open, is connected together. At the top of the scale of reality, Erigena puts mind itself, or deity, defining it as that which creates but is not created. There's another thing. We have this hard time with this. How could something be not created? Because everything we know is created. Where then is this mind from which the order of the whole universe is derived? We are told that God is neither in space nor time, that mind, in the supreme sense, the power that gives order to all, cannot be understood by our passive reason, upon which are impressed natural ideas derived from our sensible experience, and that no natural thought can compass its measure. Our sense-based mind, that is our mind that was created by the senses, cannot get a grip on this idea, something outside of the senses, because that's all it knows. For it is outside the visible world, set in space and running in time. We next learn that from this mind is first derived the order of ideas, of which we have already spoken, of which all created things are copies. This order cannot, of course, be apprehended through natural sense, because natural senses can only see tables and chairs and walls and people and things like that and houses and brick and mortar and like that, but it can't see the ideas behind it. Thus, the ideas, the second order, are created, and in their turn, they create. So you can see that ideas are created by mind, then those ideas, in their turn, create. So the idea of a chair creates chairs. The idea of a table creates tables. They create, ultimately the order of life with which we are familiar, the visible world of people, animals, and plants. So ideas create the world that we see, what we know about. We can imagine an architect informing some pupils of his plans and leaving them to carry out his instructions. The same thing. The mind creates the ideas and then leaves the little minds to carry out the architect's instructions. But we must also imagine that the conditions under which these instructions are to be carried out are definitely limited. So in the ultimate mind, ideas, because there is no time, there is no space, ideas are instantaneous, all happening together, and fully blown complete, because there's no sequence to them. You don't get an idea. You don't think it through. Okay? So it's just, bam, right now, that's it. Because that's all there is, bam, right now. And it's all at once. Everything, everything is connected and everything is together all at once right now. But see, for us, that's incomprehensible. We can say, okay, I, I get that, but we don't get it. As working examples or experiments of the ideas, we are subject to passing time in which nothing can be instantaneously realized. Everything must conform to a process of transition from moment to moment. You're going to go from here to the kitchen, you've got to go from moment to moment. You can't just instantaneously be there. Unless, of course, you're Samantha on Bewitched.
But then it's not really instantaneous either. You still got to twitch your nose or something. We have to think of it. We have to do something. The third order is, therefore, the order of created things, including ourselves, that we perceive in time, which are necessarily imperfect copies of the ideas that proceed from mind. Why are they imperfect copies? Hello? That's a question. They are imperfect copies because they are in time. So they can't be perfect copies because they're... And not only that, but come on. You get a copier, and you get the original, and you make a copy, and it's not the same. Then you make a copy of the copy, and it's not the same. It gets worse and worse. It degrades. Plus, as the copier gets old, it degrades even more, and all kinds of things go weird with it. So you get the drift. We understand, therefore, that the phenomenal world is actually a world of effects whose causes lie at a higher level in the scale of reality, the higher level being mind and the ultimate mind, the supreme mind, outside of time and space, which we cannot comprehend. While these effects are themselves related to one another in a certain sequence in time order, which we can study scientifically, we cannot reach causes in a proper sense. So we can study all of this stuff scientifically, but we can't, in a proper sense, reach causes. The best we can do is reach the copies, that is, the ideas. We learn further that what is outside time is free from opposites and inner contradictions. Now, this is what Erigena is saying. In time, we experience everything in the form of opposites, and our thinking is based, to a large extent, if not entirely, upon opposites. Hot, cold, black, white, up, down, light, dark, blah, 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 blah. It follows that mind itself is beyond our natural level of thought. So our natural level of thought is clearly about this physical stuff. And if you try to get outside of that, it's very difficult. For example, meditation is trying to withdraw from the physical, and your mind won't let you. It's attached to all of these things because it is a sense-based mind. It was made by these things. It was formed by these things. For this reason, Erigena says that we cannot apply any name or known quality to God. He can be called truth, good, justice, or any name we like, but all such predicates imply an opposite. If he's truth, then there's obviously a lie. If he's good, then there's obviously bad. If he's justice, then there's obviously injustice. Since we think by means of words to which we can find an opposite, it's impossible for us to conceive the nature of God. The world scale of Erigena thus appears as a scale of descent from the whole and perfect into the divided and less perfect, from pattern to copy. I have given the scale as briefly as possible. I think you get it, right? In one sense, it's easy for us to admit that the visible is derived from the invisible because all visible matter is built out of smaller and still smaller parts. And finally, out of atoms and electrons, which in themselves are quite invisible. In themselves, meaning without a microscope. These older systems, however, regarded the universe from the standpoint of man's position in it, his significance with regard to it, his possibilities, etc. If we think of the world as merely composed of electrons and say that only they constitute the invisible world, we cannot really connect this view with ourselves. It doesn't increase our understanding or show us any possibilities about ourselves, right? So you're made up of atoms and electrons and so on, protons and neutrons. So how does that help you understand yourself? It doesn't. It helps you understand your body, but that's it. 
We may establish the view that the atom is like a small solar system in which the electrons revolve in orbits. Further, the view may be established that these orbits represent discontinuous levels of energy and that the electrons jump into greater orbits by the absorption of definite quantities of radiant energy and into smaller orbits with the emission of definite quantities of radiant energy. In such theories, however, since the element of mental construction enters largely, we may wonder whether man is not studying his own mind. What we find in the atom may be some reflection of ourselves. If we find levels, and if we find that nothing can ever be predicted accurately in atomic phenomena, it may be that these facts are related to the mind itself. We may just be imagining all this, or it may be just a matter of this is just the way our minds work. Now, the older views, like those of Erigena, regarded man and the universe as quite inseparable. Man was held to be a little world, an image of the greater world. Nothing that he discovered about himself did not apply to the world, and nothing that he discovered about the world did not apply to himself. Now, metaphysics does this very same thing. You discover something about the world, like, well, my neighbor's a jerk, and you've just discovered something about yourself. <laughs> that you're a jerk, and that you're projecting it usually on your neighbor. He is microcosmos in macrocosmos. Such a view entitles us to say that from one angle, every man is the center of the universe. Well, we knew that already. You know that you're the center of your universe, and you're the center of yours, and you're the center of yours. I mean, who else is there, really? There's the other people who populate your universe, but you're the center of it. Let's look for a moment at this idea, which we'll study later. Sometimes the world produces an overwhelming impression, perhaps particularly today when everything is so abnormally linked up owing to the discoveries in electrodynamics. And like I said, people can't walk without instructions from their phone, which is why you see so many of them walking along with phones stuck in their ears because they have to have instructions. Everything is abnormally linked up, like social networking, abnormally linked up so that people really don't have relationships anymore. They have social networking. We hear one another speaking at immense distances. This velocity of radiant energies through which we are put into instantaneous communication with every part of the earth is obviously incommensurable with man. That is, it's out of all proportion to man's proportions. He's living, as it were, in a world that does not belong to him. Who does the world belong to? Actually, we should say, what does the world belong to? The world belongs to technology now. It is what drives us. We do not drive technology. Technology is now what drives us. And must necessarily feel loss of individuality and locality. I would say that people certainly feel loss of individuality. Why else would they be so upset all the time? Why else would manufactured outrage be so prevalent? Why else would taking offense be a daily pastime for what almost everybody on the planet? because they've lost a sense of individuality and locality. He becomes overwhelmed and emotionally dulled, lost in a clamor of outer things. Yet each one of us is at the center of the world, because he himself sees the world and all that is in it. At the top of the scale of reality, Erigena puts mind outside space and time. Scientifically, we put all original causes far back in time. When did the universe start with the Big Bang Theory? However many, 32 billion years ago, whatever it was now, they, they have some new idea about how long ago it was. And some 32 and a half billion years ago, whatever. 
And it's like, why don't you just make up any number? What does it matter? From our natural thought, we cannot understand how cause can be regarded any other way, for our natural ideas arise out of our experience of space and time. We find ourselves in the world passing in time from moment to moment, a world of opposites, of contradictions, and as it were, of half-truths. Summer is followed by winter, war by peace, and so on, and these opposites are separated by what? Time. What was called our passive reason argues from time and space as we know them. Everything, all of our arguments are based in time and space because our passive reason, which was created in this time and space continuum, is locked into that. There is nothing else that it can think, or there is no other way it can reason. It tries to explain everything on this basis. But when we come to study systems like that of Erigena, we learn that our space and time are only particular conditions to which mortals are subject. We know, in short, only a limited reality, which is characterized by passage in time. You're born, you live, you die. That's it. That's the limited reality that you know about. Well, what's after that? I don't know. Nobody knows. So we're told that the ultimate cause and origin of all things is not a million, million years ago. It is outside time now. And see, our passive reason goes, how can it be a million, million years ago now? Obviously, in our world, time has passed. So it couldn't be now. Because we know that now just passed. So it couldn't be now. So this is what passive reason limits us to. And this is why our reality is limited. Erigena draws certain conclusions from the world scale on which his system is based. Whatever is on the lower level cannot understand a higher level, but can fully comprehend and be understood by what is above, and only finds its full meaning through seeking to enter the reality above it. Man's consciousness is capable of ascending this scale. Your body is not capable of doing it, but your consciousness is. Since this scale is given as a representation of the true structure of the universe, we're told that everything is in a certain relationship to everything else. We found the same idea in the Pythagorean scale of harmonic proportions. To a certain extent, we know from experience that nothing lives of itself. We perceive that our vital life is drawn from the energy of the sun, which acts on the minute solar machines in the leaves of plants and in the organisms floating on the surface of the sea. These build up, out of light, air, water, and minerals, the food that sustains organic life in general. So we know that without the sun, we're dead meat. We know that without photosynthesis, we're dead meat. That's it. There is nothing here for us, not in this present form. In this sense, we depend upon what is perceptibly greater and perceptibly lesser for our physical existence. Sun, man, cell are connected, but these are of different orders. The sun is a body of vast energy with an interior temperature of 40 million degrees. The cell is the microscopic watery element of life out of which all living tissue is built. Clearly, vastly different scales. We exist in a universe of relationships in which everything is bound together in an order so that the whole constitutes a unity. This order is in itself something actual. We find order in the atom, in the limited number of possible orbits surrounding the central proton. We find order in the constitution of man's body, in the interrelationship of its organs and integrations of the nervous system. 
we find order in the world of stars and planets. We do not find only positive and negative electrical charges or action and reaction, but a third principle, order. Since all is related proportionally and bound together in a common unity of order, the universe, for Erigena, is throughout united. The lower is comprehended in the higher, and relative to the higher, it is less real. So you can see that an idea is less real than the mind that sustains it. You can see that the table is less real than the idea that is the pattern of the table. Okay, it's good. This stuff can be, if you don't stop and knock wood once in a while and, you know, bring this into the world where we can understand things, it gets out of hand fast. It just becomes all this intellectual swirly stuff. So I want you to stay with concrete examples as much as you can, and it helps. I think it helps. So the lower is comprehended in the higher, and relative to it is less real. Everything is real, but relatively less real than what is above it. So we are less real than whatever is above us. In a sense, um, well, I'll leave that one go. Insofar as man is a little universe in himself, this scale of relative reality exists in him up to a point so that he's capable of becoming more real, of reaching fuller existence by ascending this scale in himself. But you can't ascend this scale with your body. You can ascend this scale with your consciousness. The effect of this scheme is to make the world a complex system of degrees of reality within which every single thing is, from one point of view, real and existent, and from another, unreal and non-existent. The lower existence is unreal in comparison with the higher right through the universe. So through the whole universe, there's this descending scale. It starts way up high where we can't imagine, and then it descends into what we can see and touch and smell and taste and hear. Unless the whole of things is a disconnected mass of particulars and therefore not a universe at all, it's impossible to think of every single thing as on the same plane of reality. We certainly can't think of every single thing in the universe as on the same plane of reality. We secure the relative reality of every single fact and at the same time the absolute reality of the universe as a rational system when we hold the manifold appearances of the world to belong to successive orders of reality. That was Henry Bett. Because mind is the ultimate reality and is greater than any perceptible thing, so every perceptible thing exists more in the mind of man than it does in itself. Now, this will take an example. <laughs> Let's say that in your mind you hear a bear in your bedroom. What does your body do? Yeah, it pumps, it squirts adrenaline into your bloodstream, your respiration increases, your heart rate increases, and flight or fight kicks in. You try and figure out a way to either get away or to somehow overcome the bear. That's the reality of it. And what did that? An idea in your mind, which is certainly more real than the bear. Okay? That's just an example that popped into my head. So here we go. Because mind is the ultimate reality and is greater than any perceptible thing, so every perceptible thing exists more in the mind of man than it does in itself, we can give one another more existence in our mental apprehension of one another. There are people who exist more for you than other people. 
Now, anybody who's ever been on an airplane and flown into a big city and looked down and, and looked at all those lights and all those cars and all those houses and thought, someone is living a whole life in each one of those houses and I will never meet them and never know anything about them. That's just one of those things where it's like, whoa. And now, think of the six and a half billion people on this planet doing that. And yet, somehow, we're all connected. We're all connected by the same sun. We're all connected by the same earth. We're all connected by the same atmosphere. We're all connected by the same food chain, food source. We're all connected in that way. But we're all mentally and emotionally connected, too. But we'll leave that for another time. It's not surprising to find, in view of the enormous value that Erigena places upon man, that he goes so far as to say that everything perceptible to the senses is made for the sake of man's senses. The emphasis is upon man, not upon the outer world. But as a mere creature of sense, man has no proper existence. He then suffers evil because of his own relative unreality, because he doesn't correspond to the reality that's possible to him, the reality that's above him, that he can reach internally. Hell is a state of being, a state not corresponding to anything real, a state of falsity. Hell is believing there's a bear in your bedroom and going crazy over it and having a heart attack, and there's no bear. It's a state of unreality. It's a state of being, but it's a state that is not corresponding to anything real. It's a state of falsity. We've spoken of a higher level of consciousness being characterized by a larger synthesis. If many sides of a question are drawn together suddenly into unitary meaning, then the many are combined into one, and a new synthesis results. What then would a new experience of oneself mean in this connection? So what if you could all of a sudden, what he's saying is, if many sides of a question are drawn together suddenly into unitary meaning, then the many are combined into one, and a new synthesis results. Well, what, then, would a new experience of oneself mean in this connection? For we don't only have experiences of the outer world or of relationships to one another. We also have inner experiences that have to do with the feeling of I. We can feel ourselves differently. You can feel yourself depressed, you can feel yourself happy, you can feel yourself bored, so you can feel yourself differently. In all those disciplines whose object was to raise people to a higher level of reality, an overcoming of oneself was demanded. For example, a purification of the emotions was held to be necessary, as well as a different way of thinking, a different relationship to people, etc., a change in oneself was held to be necessary, because as long as one remained just as one was, one could not have different experiences. Only through new ideas and new efforts could any permanent change be produced. Of course, this is all makes perfect sense to you, but remember, this is the 10th century that these people are talking about this. But momentary changes sometimes occur. They indicate to us that there are other states of oneself. And while they last, one is changed through a new feeling of oneself. So this is one of the things that, you know, you go and you take a 10-day meditation course and you come and you're changed. You have some kind of experience and you're changed. And for as long as you are in that state, you are different. But eventually, you start getting sucked back into your ordinary consciousness by your routine and your life and the world. And then you're not different anymore. You're the old person again. But never completely the same. Although you couldn't get that out of people who 
are going to criticize you for not being what they want you to be. But you know you're not the same. All change in oneself comes through a changed feeling of oneself. Any change that happens in you comes from a feeling of yourself changing. We have what can be called a natural reality in which we dwell, our ordinary state of consciousness. We move in a small orbit of meanings, of notions about ourselves, about others, and the world. And just how small that is, you don't want to know. If this orbit is broken, we're usually in a peculiarly helpless condition, having no idea of anything else. There seems to be nothing to fall back upon. What we actually lose is the ordinary feeling of ourselves. So we become frightened and lost, not so much because of what has happened, but because we cannot recognize ourselves. To become different means another recognition of oneself. We are told that this oneself is capable of changing. But if it changes, there will be another sense of oneself. There are completely new feelings of oneself to which, I believe, people sometimes come very close without understanding what they are. I can give you an example of this. You know, somebody does a psychedelic drug and they jump out a window because they have a new feeling about themselves. They feel like they can fly. And in reality, there is some truth to that, just not in the reality that they're living in or were living in, depending on how high they were when they jumped out the window, thinking they could fly. A person may touch a much better feeling of himself momentarily without knowing what it is, and perhaps only be frightened of it. He may experience truth in some form, which makes everything that usually occupies his attention seem unreal, and merely think that something is seriously wrong with him. We know that there can enter into all that we see, do, think, and feel a sense of unrealness, Sometimes it takes the form of seeing the unreality of other people. We observe that some force seems to be hurrying everyone to and fro, like watching all these people walking around with cell phones and imagining that they're getting instructions on how to walk. We see transiently a puppet world in which people are moved as by strings. Sometimes, however, in place of unreality, an extraordinary intensity of reality is felt. We suddenly see someone for the first time whom we have known for years, in a kind of stillness. All of a sudden, you just get that person. We perceive the reality of another existence, or we perceive the existence of nature suddenly, as a marvel, for the first time. You've all had this experience. I told you about the time I saw the trees breathing and experienced my life force and their life force being one, us breathing together. And everybody, well, of course the trees are breathing. They're alive, you idiot. And it's like, no, they just didn't get it. Because I was having an experience outside of my normal experience. I wasn't perceiving the trees breathing. I was perceiving my unity with the trees as they breathed, as we breathed together. The same experience felt in relation to oneself is the sense of one's own existence, independent of everything else. The realization of one's invisibility. The perception of I, of duration, without time. These feelings surround our natural reality. I think that they show us clearly enough that there are other meanings of oneself or forms of conscious experience. If you choose to see that. If you choose not to, of course, it won't. I don't think there's any question about that. Let's consider an example of a changed state of consciousness and see whether we can regard it in some degree as an example of the reaching of a higher level. Let's not do that, because he's going to talk about one of the 
events that Tennyson recorded about himself. And I think it would be better if we held that till next time because it's one of those things that is going to take a little bit of effort. And I know by the look on your faces that you have expended most of the energy that you have for this kind of effort this evening. Truth is everything.